This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. What is a deep fake? What is cancel culture in comedy? What is a coronation? What was the 1992 Dream Team? And what are love languages? We'll review all of these questions and more on the finale of Getting Schooled. I'm Abby Hornacek. This episode is a little bit different because after four years and 225 episodes, it is officially time to graduate. We have covered a lot of subjects on getting schooled. We talked about UFOs, how to solve crimes using digital forensics, how often our subconscious mind actually plays a role in our everyday lives. I even had a guest read my body language. And she wasn't the only fun guest we had either. Charles Barkley joined the podcast, the Hatfields and McCoys, my parents, and of course, I hung out with a few of my wonderful Fox friends because we are just one big family. And over the last several years, I feel like we've all become one family as well. Each person has given us a memory that we're going to take with us to the next chapter. So stay tuned on that. But for now, before the final bell rings, let's take a look back on some of our favorite moments from getting schooled. Deepfakes aren't necessarily a new technology, and they certainly aren't going away anytime soon. CEO and co-founder of Pinscreen, Hao Li, joined me in the classroom for a lesson about deepfakes and how to spot them. Okay, what the heck is a deepfake, Hao? Yeah, a deepfake is a um, technique uh, that allows you to manipulate a video, a person in a video, and more specifically, you can put anyone's face into another person's face. And uh, it's using uh, some recent advancements in artificial intelligence uh, to basically generate very convincing facial manipulations. Okay, so let's say that this podcast was on air, right? And the camera's on me, but we don't yeah. see you. Someone could deep fake your face onto my face. Uh, that's right. Um, so all um, this person would need is basically a bunch of footages uh, of my face. Let's say uh, a couple of thousand frames uh, would be enough to get something really good. And uh, they can basically download a software uh, from the internet. There are m uh, multiple variants of deepfake solutions. And what the uh, algorithm would do, it would take your footage and it can basically insert my face uh, into yours. And uh, one of the things that, uh, you know, my company has also demonstrated is that you can also do this in real time. In real time. How much more difficult is that than if you were to go back and manipulate a video? Yeah. So in real time means that you would still uh, pre-train the other person. So that usually takes a couple of hours uh, to a few days if you want to get it, uh, uh, do it really well. But once uh, the model is trained uh, for the target subject, the person you'd like to insert into your face, uh, you can basically, um, you know, go on air. You can have a live stream of yourself and your face is basically not yours anymore and it turns into someone else's. 
Okay, so I have so many questions in regards to that, but I guess first I should ask you where this all came from. How long have deep fakes been around and, and why did they first get created? Right. So first of all, um, you know, we've been working uh, on uh, facial tracking, facial performance capture, facial animation since, uh, you know, uh, probably more than a decade. And uh, there have been a lot of advancements over time. Right. So first of all, you had in visual effects in Hollywood, you had a lot of um, different methods um, that, you know, does facial tracking and you can reenact, you know, some actors uh, but those are techniques that are uh, require experts to use. Um, there's a lot of digital artists that are needed. Uh, over time, uh, there has been a lot of advancements, uh, starting with methods that use video um, to basically, um, you know, create data-driven models. And more lately, since uh, probably around 2014, 2015, there, there has been, a, you know, some new advancements in the area of artificial intelligence, more specifically in deep learning. And uh, that's where, um, you know, some of the really convincing uh, face manipulation techniques uh, have started uh, to exist. So the first time deep fakes, um, you know, as we know them, um, emerged on the internet was around late uh, 2017. Uh, The first time I saw them was, you know, on a, uh, in the news where they showed up on some Reddit posts and people were using them for uh, non-consensual pornography. So basically putting celebrities into porn. And that's sort of like how they got viral. Wow. Yeah. You use the word manipulation in that first mm-hmm. answer that you gave me. And I think anytime the word manipulation is attached to something, there's there's kind of a sense of fear there because nobody wants to be manipulated. And that kind of speaks to the future of deep fakes and how they can be used. So that being said, how how do you how do you ensure that People don't use deep fakes, perhaps on the president of the United States. Um, you know, we saw President Obama get deep faked, if, if I'm using that term correctly, um, you know, to say things that he didn't actually say. So how like in terms of legality, how do you stop this? Yeah. So first of all, um, <clears throat> the um, technology uh, itself was. Uh, you know, started uh, not for, for manipulation purposes. This is this all came later, right? So, in the beginning, it was all developed for entertainment purpose, for storytelling, for you know, um, technologies such as telecommunication. Uh, but then, very quickly, you know, these kind of technologies um, are being misused, and uh, some of the obvious, you know, potential threats that you mentioned is what if people start to use this technology for disinformation. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, when deepfakes came out uh, very quickly, people were really concerned about uh, the potential misuse of these kind of technologies for, you know, things such as during the elections or trying to, um, you know, um, change people's minds uh, when they read the news, especially nowadays, you can basically have, you know, create and spread any content on social media. And a lot of the content isn't verified. So first of all, um, I think, um, h- how do we protect against these kind of potential threats is first of all, people just need to know that videos, just like, you know, images are being Photoshopped videos. You can do the same thing with videos. You can't fully trust anything that you see. Um, but, uh, on the other hand, uh, there are ways to, uh, protect yourself, which is first of all, 
if the content comes from trusted sources, it's always better, right? So mm. if you have, you know, some uh, third-party authorities where that does proper fact-checking, um, such as mainstream media, it's usually, you know, there's some levels of um, verification before something random would come out. It's not some random, you know, videos that I would just see on the internet or I would, uh, you know, someone would share with me on social media. Um, the second thing is also that uh, many of these social media platforms, that, and that's by the way, the um, areas where um, we're mostly vulnerable to uh, these kind of, um, you know, fake news attacks, mm -hmm. um, is uh, they already are implementing a lot of mechanisms for fact-checking. Um, you can often see now that there are, you know, indications of if certain information isn't trustworthy. We've, we've seen that actually a lot with, you know, news around COVID, um, where, you know, these kind of companies are basically providing additional information saying that, you know, this source wasn't verified or there is some other sources that are contradicting uh, what uh, you're watching or reading. We always try to keep it fun here in the classroom, which is why we had to have comedian, host of Fox Across America, and the host of Fox News Saturday Night, Jimmy Fallon, join us for a lesson about cancel culture in the comedy realm. All right, so I'm excited to have this conversation. Um, you know, comedy has always towed the line between offensive, mm -hmm. but also being funny. Mm -hmm. So let's just start by uh, getting your opinion on how do you tow that line? Uh, I mean, the God's honest truth is you hear an adage used a lot in comedy when they say, like, you got to read the room, you know, mm -hmm. but that doesn't actually apply to comedy. Like no good comic reads the room. Like our job is to lead the room because we have a microphone. We set the terms of the negotiation. And the God's honest truth is you can say anything if it's funny. But the challenge comics have in this day and age, as you know, is we don't get in trouble for what we say in comedy clubs. We get in trouble for when it makes its way onto the internet. You know, the people who right. bought the two drinks that are just there to laugh and bargain in good faith aren't the ones who show up to ruin your career. It's the person who wasn't at the show, oddly enough, who has to go out and download this clip. Like, <laughs> it's on demand. You had to demand to get this offensive content into your life and then demand that the person who clearly didn't put a gun to your head to make you watch it should now be fired. But the God's honest truth is for every comic, the way you toe the line, and I do this every day as a spe specifically as a Fox News talent, mm -hmm. you know, because sometimes I'm in mixed rooms that aren't Fox News rooms, is I make sure it's understood off the tippy top of the show that these are jokes. These aren't even necessarily my views, but, but above all else, they're not hate crimes. Like comedy clubs exist so people can laugh at things that torment them as a means of taking the power away from those torments for a few minutes a day. And that's the point of a comedy club. And it's unfathomable to you as a youngster. Mm -hmm. um, but there was a time like when I started out in comedy. This is unfathomable. It's going to blow your mind. But in the immediate aftermath of September 11th, Every comic in New York City was doing jokes about it. Oh, no. And no, it wasn't oh, no back then because this is how they <laughs> grieved. It's oh, no, now you'd get fired in a second. But yeah. back then, every club was mobbed because people just needed to escape the horror we were all feeling. And so for a lot of people, comedy is a coping mechanism with the traumas, the torments of society. And that's why I am such a fierce protector of it because the people, uh, if comedy is censored, lose that coping mechanism. Right. Whereas, whereas the people who don't like it don't have to consume it makes sense because they always say, oh, can you please silence your cell phones? Did you mm -hmm. hear that? Did you yeah. hear that right now? Yeah, yeah. Just, that was my that was my um, my email. That was your ankle bracelet from the state. Let's Maybe, talk yeah. about your please background. Please don't cancel me. Let's talk about your record here for a minute. Are we, it might have been mine. Are we within 500 <laughs> yes, feet of a school? I, I apologize. <laughs>
<laughs> I won't cancel you for your, that comment. Don't don't you worry. Um, <laughs> you know, it is interesting because you're right. I, people always say in order to cope, sometimes you just got to laugh at yourself. You go through something hard, you got to laugh about it. So then what's the difference between dark humor, you talk about 9-11, dark humor, and then offensive humor? Well, the thing about offensive humor, and I always say this to everybody as a qualifier, is jokes really are just jokes. No one should be offended by anything. I know that's a pipe dream. That's just not going to be the case. <laughs> but if I was going to give you like a roadmap as to how to consume comedy, uh, comedy is a buffet. Okay, if you see something you like, you laugh at it. You throw it on your tray. If you don't like it, no need to make a big deal about it. We all get our own tray. Just keep walking. You don't have to stop because you don't eat macaroni and cheese. Yeah, you and, don't have to throw the mac and cheese on the ground. Yeah, well, let alone fire the chef. You <laughs> yeah. have your own tray. You have tongs in front of every one of these you know, things at your disposal. But everybody has such a staggering sense of self-importance that nowadays we got to this place of, you know, when you talk about the difference between dark humor and offensive humor, it's just, it's so subjective, which is why... You know, the, the difference is whatever somebody wants it to be. Like, you could go watch Gilbert Godfrey, who is pound for pound probably the most offensive human being that's ever taken a comedy stage. And you might not get offended by any of it because you know he's a harmless little character who's just goofing off. But some people will take his words and give them a more inflated purpose than they have. Like, when a comedy, let me just be clear. When a comedian is telling a joke, okay, we are, Abby, we are liquor pimps, okay? Our job is to entertain people so they buy two over priced watered down drinks from whoever owns <laughs> the establishment. They're always so bad. That's it's a terrible. whole other topic. Why are drinks so bad at comedy so Maybe clubs? that's the problem. Maybe we need to make the comedy drink stronger, but I know yes. that's not true because I've entertained far too many bachelorette parties to know <laughs> they don't need stronger alcohol. But I think the difference between what's offensive and, not, and what isn't is in the eye of the beholder, which is why I don't think we should ever cancel anybody for a joke because, again, we all have the right not to hear it. You know, mm. if we were going to talk about Dave Chappelle's special, okay, and maybe we will at some point, I don't mean to steer the bus, but Dave Chappelle's special, you have to pay to get Netflix. You then have to demand it. You have to scroll through, and let's be clear, it's not the only option on Netflix. There are 6,395,000,000 other options for you on Netflix tonight. If you watch Dave Chappelle's special- <laughs> Thank you special, for breaking down. You're very good at math. I get the al an algorithm. <laughs> but if you watch Dave Chappelle's special, because you wanted to, okay, yeah. and then maybe you're a little surprised by what you got out of it. But what he was talking about in his special really quickly, okay, is he was discussing his relationship with the trans community. Uh, he said that he felt they were too sensitive as an audience. That's what he was joking about. They responded to accusations of being sensitive by boycotting and calling on him to be fired. Imagine I said to you, Abby Hornacek, you're an alcoholic. You're like, no, I'm not. Watch me chug this keg of beer. You just kind of confirmed the guy's <laughs> I'm accusation. I'm an alcoholic because you just accused me of being an alcoholic, Jimmy. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's how it works. And if you watch the whole Dave Chappelle special, which was his one bargaining chip, as he said, anybody who wants to discuss this with me, you have to watch the special. Because if you watch the special, uh, he is talking about his relationship with a transgender comedian who did sadly ultimately kill herself. But he set up a scholarship fund for her children which is hardly the action of a man who doesn't consider trans people, you know, equal or right or valid or good or worth saving and preserving and protecting. And that's my frustration is I think now, Abby, humor and offense, it's not so much that people are offended. It's the fact that by acting offended, you get stuff. We'll be right back after this. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX is The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX is The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu.
The famous 1992 Dream Team was a force to be reckoned with, which is why we continue to talk about it decades later. Who better to get the inside information from than special guest NBA Hall of Famer Charles Barkley? So we wanted to talk to you about the dream team. I mean, 1992, this was a big year because the world of sports was gifted a team that we would talk about for generations to come. So starting with the basics, why was, quote, the greatest collection of basketball talent on the planet created in the first place? Well, I think, well, (laughs) honestly, because we had started losing in the Olympics. That was the honest to God truth. And, you know, that's, that's a little bit deceptive. Because what happened was we were the only country not uh, using college players. So we started losing. We started losing in the world championships. But the the unfair thing about it was these college kids were playing against guys who played in the NBA. Uh, So it it really was an interesting time. We're like, yo, man, relax. We don't have to win the gold medal. But – when they started sending all their pros and we started getting our butt kicked, we're like, <laughs> the NBA says, maybe we should let them know we're the best basketball playing country in the world. And, uh, and that's how the whole dream thing came about, that we had lost in the Olympics. We had never lost. We lost a year to Russia cheated, like, over and over and over. But other than that, we'd really never lost in the Olympics or the world championship. But when we started losing, the NBA felt like we had to do something. Yeah, it's still crazy to think that prior to 1992, NBA players weren't permitted to compete in the Olympics. When you look back, Charles, how was this team formed? I mean, the NBA at the time had so many great players. So what was the process of getting selected and who decided on the players who got to play on this team? Well, you know, I really have no idea. I'm not going to tell you that. I just got a phone call one day. I was actually playing golf in the middle of the summer, and I got a phone call from Rod Thorne. And he says, Chuck, Rod Thorne here. I'm like, yo, Rod, what up? Why are you calling me in the middle of the summer? I couldn't have did anything wrong right now. And he says, you want to be on the dream team? I said, what's the dream team? He says, it's going to be the first time we send pros to the Olympics. I said, it would be an honor and a privilege to, to be on that team, uh, especially the first one. And I got to tell you something. I've said this many times, the the Olympics are the coolest event I've ever been to in my life. Television does not do it justice. Mm -hmm. I think that everybody, if you're a fan of sports, you should go to the Olympics one time in your life. Because obviously they're going to show the more popular sports and the biggest names. But being around the other Olympians, I was inspired. Not because... It was going to be the greatest thing ever happened in their life. Like some of these countries uh, that you never heard of, I might add, you know, a guy getting to the Olympics to one from one of those countries is the highlight of his life. Right. And it, the one thing I tell you is one interesting thing about the, 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 the opening ceremonies. So we got to, they're like, okay, guys, the opening ceremonies are next week. We probably need about four or five hours. We're going to hold y'all in a holding cell for a couple hours and blah, blah, blah. We're like, what the hell are we going to be doing for four or five hours? <laughs> and then the thing is amazing, and it's, and, and, and it's one of the coolest things you're ever going to see and be a part of. And, uh, and to see A to Z countries walking, it took about four or five hours 
And it was one of the coolest things that I've ever been a part of or ever witnessed. I can't imagine. I mean, obviously, going into this, like you mentioned, you were going to be the spectacle for a lot of people, especially being the first team that had NBA players to go play in the Olympics. What was the atmosphere like when you traveled? Did you feel like the Beatles or Michael Jackson? Or What was that like? Well, I don't know what Michael Jackson or the Beatles felt like, but it felt something like the craziest thing I've ever been a part of. <laughs> you know, there was a when we got to go to practice into game. There was like a a fifteen yard walk where people could see us, and every single day there was five thousand people out there waiting just to get a glimpse of us. And then along the highway, there was hundreds and hundreds of people holding up signs, and in front of our bus was a police car. In back of our bus was a police car. Above our car was a, uh, a bus was a helicopter. And on the side of our bus was two guys on a motorcycle, and one of them had a machine gun. Oh, and gosh. it was amazing, number one, walking out the hotel, driving to the game, seeing the hundreds, hundreds, hundreds of people on the side of the highway. I mean, it was crazy. It was awesome. History was also made during our time on the podcast with the coronation of King Charles III. I was joined by co-host of TMZ's Sipping the Royalty podcast, Sean Mandel, for a lesson about the monarchy. When we talk about a coronation, I mean, that, the symbolism dates back more than a thousand years. Yes. And I know this year is probably going to look a little bit different. Can you talk to me about traditions or any changes that there might be um, that might be different from Queen Elizabeth II? Absolutely. So Queen Elizabeth's coronation happened 70 years ago. Um, it already was modernized from previous coronations. Uh, the, the last coronation that would have happened before that would have been her father um, in the 1930s. So within about uh, two decades. So it hadn't been nearly as long as it had been to today um, between in the sort of interregnum, if you will. But the length of the ceremony is going to be much shorter than it usually is. Uh, previously, it has been in, this, in the area of five hours. This is going to be about two hours or so. Wow. Um, yes. So it's because it is a, as you mentioned, it is a service that goes back a thousand years. And it, it has uh, only recently had to be um, digestible for television audiences and for commercial breaks and things of that sort and to keep uh, people's attention. Uh, you know, Queen Elizabeth wasn't actually the one who wanted to have her coronation televised. And of course, it was the first coronation that was televised. It was her husband, Prince Philip, who advocated for that as trying to modernize the monarchy and make it accessible to people. So that already was a way that her coronation was vastly different than anything that had come before it. This, uh, as well, will also be uh, be televised. Uh, there are going to be uh, additional changes, though, other than just uh, the, the length of the service. Uh, for example, you're not going to to be seeing uh, as many people attending this uh, the coronation. Uh, it'll be in the area of 2,000 rather than 5,000, for example. Um, and uh, people who are going to be attending at Westminster Abbey, which is where uh, in London, uh, you know, ancient uh, church where both kings and queens are crowned. Uh, you know, it's where Princess Diana, ha uh, her funeral was, for instance, it's where William and Kate got married. Uh, so, you know, very obviously focal 
part of the British monarchy is Westminster Abbey. Uh, so that will remain the same. But there's going to be more business formal attire among guests there rather than wearing necessarily uh, ermine lined robes and capes mm-hmm. by some, except if you're a member. Oh, man. I know. You're still going to get them, though. You're still going to get them. Um, but so it's going to not be as it's still going to be ostentatious. Let me be clear. Like, it's there's still mm-hmm. going to be a giant gold carriage from the 18th century that's going to take Charles from Westminster Abbey back to Buckingham Palace. And there's still going to be, you know, oaths made and crowns placed on heads. But it is not going to be um, as uh, lavish as it would have been uh, in the 1950s for Queen Elizabeth's coronation. And of course, even, you know, uh, in decades and uh, centuries before that. Right. I'm wondering if part of the reason, obviously, in today's world, it does need to be digestible. We have a shorter attention span because yeah. of, you know, this whole slew of things. But I wonder if that also kind of has to do with King Charles's age. He's 74, right? Yes. Yeah. No, I mean, it undoubtedly uh, and many people have commented on this that, you know, this is not uh, a 25 year old monarch. Um, So he is definitely going to be keenly aware of the fact that he doesn't want to be not only just from a personal comfort level stuck there uh, for that long of time, but also there are going to be cameras rolling and he doesn't want to look uncomfortable or look tired uh, with the cameras rolling because, you know, uh, perception matters in, in uh, on this day more than probably any other day in Charles's life up until this point. Well, that's such a good point about perception. Also, I am 29 years old and I don't know if I can sit through five hours. So. <laughs> I have a hard like, time going to the movies for a three hour, you know, <laughs> jaunt these days. So I get it. Right. Oh, my gosh. Um, so I guess I should have addressed this at the beginning, just for anyone who doesn't know what a coronation is. Obviously, yeah. things are becoming more official and it's a formal thing. Will you go deeper into what exactly is a coronation? Sure. So a coronation is really actually best described as a party because when a monarch dies, so when Queen Elizabeth II passed away, Charles uh, immediately upon her passing became uh, King Charles III. So there's no uh, delay. He doesn't have to be coronated to be actually officially uh, considered king. Uh, he is, there is an accession council that meets immediately after a monarch passes away, which if you've been following any of the news of Charles becoming king, you may remember there was an incident with him and a pen getting into a fight with a pen. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. Trying to sign his name. That happened at uh, a event that's uh, called the meeting of the accession council, which basically just is uh, the member, his members of his uh, inner uh, of his inner staff and the uh, and the government saying, OK, we are officially recognizing that Charles is now the monarch, the signing of papers and da, 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 da. it's very staid. It's, it's not very exciting. Um, the coronation is meant to be that sort of official celebration of the monarch becoming, uh, you know, ascending to this role. And also it brings in the religious element because this takes place in a church. This doesn't take place in, you know, government building. It takes because in Britain, of course, church and state not separated. Um, Charles is both the head of state and the head of church, head of the Church of England, uh, defender of the faith, uh, or as he calls it uh, is trying to view his role as defender of faith to make it not so just uh, focused on Christianity and um, the Anglican faith. But this is, uh, again, supposed to be a a celebration, a party, a, a PR event also. You know, I mean, that's and that's before 
the age of television. This is supposed to be, you know, a moment for a, a person, uh, for a king or queen to sort of solidify their power and show themselves off to the world because there are visiting heads of state and foreign dignitaries and to show off, you know, how uh, virile and uh, noble and powerful you are. Um, that's, mm-hmm. you know, historically true, but also still true to this day. You know, Charles wants to project a certain image to the world and wants people to feel, uh, you know, inspired by Maybe, you know, even if it's not, you know, him being coronated by some aspect of the coronation that maybe will also reignite their uh, their belief and love for the monarchy. We'll be right back after this. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As we end this podcast in February, I'd like to end with a message of love. Here's some of my interview with clinical sexologist and psychotherapist, Dr. Christy Overstreet, for a lesson about love languages. How were the five love languages identified in the first place? And do you ever think that they should change or be updated? Well, I think as we continue to figure ourselves out, there's always room and space to update But as far as identifying on which ones resonate with you, you ask yourself a couple of questions because it's hard as an individual, especially depending on the relationship dynamic you're in, to say, how am I going to figure out what is important to me? So you can ask yourself just simple questions like, I feel most loved when someone does blank. That might be how they tell me how important I am to them. Maybe they give me a hug. Maybe they give me a special little gift. And then... I feel best about my relationships when someone tells me they're proud of me, or maybe they invite me to spend time with them, or maybe they help out by running an errand. There's little things we can think about ourselves as it relates to other people to see what do we feel most love from. And looking at those five love languages, you can kind of go through those and pick it out. And again, we don't have to pick just one. Most of us are made different ones mean different things to us in a different amount, but there's typically one to two that are more dominant than the others. Mm. So what, I guess, what is important about identifying your own love language when you enter, let's say a romantic relationship? Well, it's our responsibility as we enter into that relationship to tell that person what our needs, wants, and desires are. It's up to us to figure out how we want to receive love, not them, because I do believe it's our personal responsibilities, how we show up in a relationship. We have to bring our half and we have to be our healthiest self. So when we know what love languages mean the most to us and maybe that dominant one or that two that feels really good for us, why not make the relationship a lot easier by saying, hey, I really like to receive physical touch or I really like it when you tell me how much you care about me or when you put your phone down and spend time with me. It's almost like the easy button in some relationships because you're taking out all that guessing and it shows that you have strength in yourself and you know who you are. I mean, what a gift to give to that new partner. Totally. I mean, can I tell someone all five? Because all five sound really nice to me. (laughs) Absolutely. I would encourage you to put them in a descending order, though. That would be helpful. There we go. I love it. I love it. All right. I have that in my head then. 
All right, we've got to step aside for a quick recess, but we'll be back right after this. Uh, What's the psychology behind love language? I'm curious about this because you are a psychotherapist and you, you know, can kind of look into someone's brain and how their behaviors and all of that. So how does that play into love languages? We want to feel safe and secure as humans. And we want to know that we belong and are connected. And when we're safe and secure, we can be vulnerable. And when we can be vulnerable, then we get to trust. And trust comes along with vulnerability. And for us to be safe in our relationships, whatever that relationship may be, that vulnerability and trust is crucial. And the love languages helps us have this empathy towards ourselves as well as other people uh, that we're connected to. And it gives that personal growth. When we're able to say, hey, I really like this means a lot to me, this specific love language, then we feel like, hey, I know myself very well. And I'm giving you this gift of getting to know me as well. And you can learn to really show love and share love in these different meaningful ways with one another. And it also helps really create this intimacy and this connection that we need within ourselves and in relationships. Mm. In your opinion, uh, Dr. Christie, of the love languages, I'm looking at them again, and you talk about intimacy. Uh, obviously, intimacy comes from emotions and physical touch. But what do you think helps you be the most intimate with your romantic partner, partner with your friends, um, you know, and, and obviously intimacy means different things in, in each example. But what do you think, which love languages speak most towards to uh, in intimacy? Well, let's look at defining intimacy as a whole. So when I think about intimacy in the folks that I work with, I look at it as connectedness to be connected. Mm -hmm. And there's different ways we can connect. There's actually 12 different types of intimacy, but we don't have to go through all those right now. And one of them that's really important is communication intimacy, physical intimacy, spiritual intimacy, crisis intimacy. There's several of those. But if we think about intimacy as connectedness, to have intimacy, we have to have trust. They're in tandem. So each of these examples of these love language all play into trust in some way or the other, whether it's physical touch, meaning when I go to give you a hug, if you push me away, my connection to you is going to go down. Therefore, my trust in you in this moment is going to go down. Mm-hmm. But if I reach out to give you a hug and you give me this tight squeeze, I'm going to feel good. Those chemicals are going to start flowing. I'm going to feel connected to you. And innately, I'm going to have more trust in you. Then when we look at the acts of service, when, when we do something for someone or someone does something for us, we're thinking that, hey, we trust that person. that They're showing up in our lives and doing those little things that can make really big differences for our time and our day and helping out. And it's the offer. Because acts of service, of course, we've got all the different examples, but it really means feeling love when someone offers to help you with something they know you need help with or to take things off your plate. And when someone helps us, we trust them. Therefore, we're more intimate, connected to them. And then with the gifts, one of the things when it comes with gifts is not the expensiveness or the largeness of the gifts. It's more of that person took time and effort into getting a gift. That's really what it's about versus the specific gift. And again, time and effort says, hey, you're worth it to me to be connected to. Therefore, that trust is there. And then quality time is pretty easy. If you're going to give me my t- your time, 
we're going to have that space to be very connected with one another. You're turning your phone off and you're making eye contact with me, which makes me feel worthy of you and worthy of myself in that space. And then the words of affirmation are great ways to show gratitude, express affection, praise, joy, all those things Mm -hmm. that definitely help us feel more trusting to that person. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast over the last several years. It really has meant the world to me. For more podcasts, you can go to foxnewspodcast.com. And this has been Getting Schooled with Abby Hornacek on the Fox News Podcast Network. Class dismissed. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox.